All right. Uh, okay, yeah, let me uh, we start. What's the day today? 25th of March. You know you're working from home when that's going down. Uh, 25th of March, 2012, through the magic of cell phone tethering. I am liberated from the Red Room itself and can be out in the great outdoors, exposing everybody on the video to my blindingly beluga-like winter tan. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? Uh, some mistake me as the lead character from the movie Powder, uh, and uh, only because of my rip dabs. So, uh, hi, everybody. How are you doing? Uh, I had a call uh, the other night with a listener, who, which will be released. Um, I'll release it before this, so this will all make sense. But he was playing the devil's advocate status position. And the devil's advocate status position, of course, was that virtue is the will of the majority. The will of the majority. And I skimmed over it uh, because I wanted to get onto another topic. But I circled back in my own mind's eye to that very topic. And hopefully this will make some sense. When people say virtue is the will of the majority, it's, um, you know, Occam's razor would say, if you're using a synonym that's exactly the same, drop the second one, right? Or Because it's kind of like a tautology. Uh, tautology, of course, is when it, it seems like you're defining something new, but you're simply making a synonym for the old. So the old debating example that I remember was uh, tautology was if you say Coke is it, and then after a long laborious position, you define it as Coke, then really all you're saying is Coke is Coke, which, um, oh, I guess we're back to the powder reference. Anyway, uh, we don't want to do that uh, as, as thinkers. And so if somebody says that the virtue is the will of the majority, then one questions why they're not simply saying the will of the majority. If they're defining the two as the same thing, then don't worry about the word ethics or virtue or the right thing or goodness or anything like that, because all of those would have definitions independent of the will of the majority. So, you know, I mean, you have a country of uh, a million people, uh, 500,001 uh, believe something that is virtuous, and then only 4,999 believe it, 400,999 believe it. And um, then you suddenly have it's no longer virtuous, even though the only thing that's changed is two people's minds. Uh, suddenly, for everyone, a definition has changed. But of course, nothing has changed in reality other than two people's minds. And so we don't want to make it confusing for people. So uh, when you're talking about the will of the majority and people say, well, what is virtuous is the will of the majority, then say, okay, well, why don't you just use the word the will of the majority? Because there's no point layering something else in that probably has a different meaning even to the uninitiated. So I just wanted to to mention that. I mean, there are the other arguments, right? So if the will of the majority is good, then, of course, the voting in of Hitler was a good thing because he was democratically voted in. And, um, you know, when people approved of slavery, it was a good thing. And then when they disapproved of slavery, it became a bad thing. And so if goodness and badness is simply defined as the will of the majority, then let's get rid of the term goodness and badness because they don't mean anything. They don't add anything to what is meant by the definition. But, of course, people want to equate virtue with whatever position they have, and they feel a little less comfortable talking about the will of the majority. But I think that discomfort is good. All right, that's it for my intro. I just wanted to touch on that. So, um, Jimmy Jamesy, Bobby Vaughn, do we have a caller? Yeah. Uh, Jack, you want to go on? Hello. Hello. Well, um, I guess it's my it's more of a comment that I have rather than a question. But uh, I was listening to one of your podcasts that talked about how you were isolated f from talking to people outside your family by uh, a, a time when you were sent to stay with the grandmother of a friend. And uh, you, you talked about how that made it impossible for you to 
discuss your situation with people outside the, the family. I noticed that uh, religion does the same thing, based on my experience. Go on. Okay. The uh, we were my family was extremely uh, dogmatic about being evangelical Christians, and it created a situation where you could not trust the advice of anyone outside of the very few people that agreed with our parents on these. Um, religious interpretations and uh, your story in that podcast reminded me very much of that situation where there was, I mean, there were, even the people who were in the church but who weren't quite as devout were people we couldn't really trust to talk to so it was, right. it was a very isolating uh, experience but I didn't perceive it that way as the time though Right. Yeah, I mean, philosophically, the way that I would phrase it, and tell me if this accords with your experience, of course, the way that I would, I would talk about that philosophically is to say something like this, that the more irrational, subjective, and fragile a belief system, the less it can open itself up to skepticism from the outside. John Irving has a great description of a priest who lost his faith. And I was, I was just talking to somebody the other day, actually, about how there's a, a, a lot of people, uh, I've actually met people who, who help priests who continue to be priests even though they've lost their faith because they don't know what else to do, they're worried about the faith of the congregation, uh, uh, they don't want to start over again in life, uh, and so on. But uh, there, uh, John Irving has a great description uh, of, uh, well, there's two, two I mentioned them before. One is the watery bullseye of a low-light flashlight. It's beautiful. Uh, the second is, you know, his faith was like a stick insect climbing up linoleum uh, and just a little blast of water knocked it right down. And so... Um, when you have an irrational belief system, it is very, it's very hard, uh, if not impossible, to expose that to the skepticism of others because the skepticism of others then joins up with your own unconscious skepticism and threatens the fragility of, of the belief system. So there is an isolationist aspect to, to that. Now, I mean, the, the sort of uh, <laughs> the troll in my head <laughs> is sort of saying, well, isn't that true of philosophy? Uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't people who are really into philosophy or FDR find it uh, harder to, um, uh, to, uh, to have contact with, uh, with people who aren't into philosophy? Uh, and I think there's some truth in that, but I think that the, the two things are quite different. Uh, because in one, you have an irrational belief system that can't stand skepticism. In the other one, you are bringing a rational philosophy to other people whose irrational beliefs themselves can't stand skepticism, and so in a sense, they're shunning, if that makes any sense. But does that accord with your experience in this area? Yes, it does. But uh, I, I guess what I noticed, what I just realized recently was there was multiple layers of it that I never noticed before. I mean, the church would teach about the world and how we, you know, Christians are different than the world. And that, that, was, that was pretty standard for for those type of churches. And then there was even another layer of uh, irrational beliefs in my family that couldn't stand up to the what little skepticism there was in the rest of the church. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think, I think it's very tragic. I think it's very isolating. Uh, to, to have irrational belief systems is very isolating. And it creates an artificial closeness or an artificial bonding. If this, is, uh, uh, you know, if this kind of way of talking makes any sense to you, let me know if it doesn't. But it creates a very artificial sense of bonding. In other words, we are bonded together like people clinging to 
logs in a raging sea. You know, your ship has gone down, you're clean. Well, you're all clinging together because you're afraid to drown, you're afraid of sharks. It's not really the same as warm, compassionate, rational, value-driven intimacy. Uh, it's just clinging together in stormy seas. And when you can get people, when, well, basically, when you can force children to imbibe or accept irrational beliefs, then you are going to create an artificial need, a bond, a hunger in them. Because irrationality, like all drugs, like all artificiality, never satisfies. It never satisfies. Like So people who look for the effect rather than the cause of community will remain addicted to that community. People who look for the effects of love rather than the cause of love will remain addicted to those effects. Uh, people who look for the effects of happiness rather than the cause of happiness will remain addicted to the effects. So, uh, you know, people who want sex uh, instead of love will remain sexual addicts and it will never be satisfying for them. Uh, people who want the diffusion of an irrational community rather than gen a genuine community will remain addicted to and then that community will eat them alive, I think, in the long run. Uh, people who choose drugs um, or alcoholism or whatever it is, rather than being virtuous and, and dealing with their issues, which is the true source of happiness, will forever be um, addicted to that. And Well, not, I shouldn't say forever, but they will, there's a tendency because the irrational is unsatisfying. The going for the effect rather than the cause means that you never actually generate the cause. It doesn't become self-sustaining. You always have to go back for more and more. And it, 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 it chews away the true source of the... Um, uh, uh, of whatever good it is that you want. So it's always struck me as like a tree. Uh, if you water a tree from the top, I'm just guessing, I don't know, but maybe it starts bringing less and less water in from the roots and then you have to keep watering it more and more on the top or it's going to die. And so people who go for the effects of happiness uh, rather than the cause of happiness actually lose the ability to generate their own happiness and thus become more addicted to the effects that they're, they're seeking. I hope that makes some kind of sense. Yeah, yes, it does. So, I, I guess I didn't have any other questions. Uh, thanks for answering. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know the, the the caution that I was uh, that I was always uh, that I would always have with people is beware uh, uh, beware belief systems that do not allow you or do not encourage you to speak your honest mind to other people. Now, I think philosophy and, and self-knowledge and all of that does counsel us to speak honestly. Honestly is the first and necessary virtue before all others can be attained and maintained. That doesn't mean it's going to go well when you speak honestly to someone, but it's the best chance the relationship has of going well. So when you have to speak dishonestly or dissemble to people, uh, that's not a very good uh, that's not a very good starting point for intimacy. Because either uh, you, through dissembling to people, you're either going to find other people who recognize and are fine with that dissembling or that falsehood, which is not good, or you're going to see people who identify with that, like they correctly identify that falsehood and then back away or try and stay away from that. So it really does keep the unreal close and the real uh, distant, and that uh, is not not a good triangulation to be in. All right. So I think, oh, look at that. I've actually answered someone's question to the somewhat of their satisfaction relatively quickly. I'm sorry. I must check the show notes as to how the show should really be going because I don't think that's how it's supposed to go. Uh, James, do we have another caller or a question from the chat room? Uh, yeah, we do have a request um, that if you could elaborate on something. I know. I know. But uh, he's actually asking you um, to elaborate further on the reversal of the old idea that you had about uh, you know owning nukes as a deterrent? I'm not sure what there is to elaborate on that. 
Um, I mean, it's. Um, uh, I put forward the um, the argument that it could be very cheap to defend a country because no country that has nuclear weapons has ever been directly invaded, but instead fights these proxy wars. And the point has been made that if you support a DRO that has nuclear weapons, then you have a mass strike capability that needs to be believed in in order to be valuable. And that, of course, would kill the innocent uh, if it were used. And so it's like, yeah, that's true. Uh, if that were the only way to defend, then, uh, you know, sadly, that would have to be the way it would go. But uh, if um, uh, if there were another way, and I, I would count upon the intelligence of brilliant entrepreneurs to come up with another way of defending a country without uh, nuclear weapons, uh, then I would definitely go for that. But, um, yeah, I think I think that's certainly – it is an effective one, but the justice of it can certainly be, <laughs> be questioned. Okay. Um... Someone does, it's actually the same person asking another question. Um, he, gets, he gets a lot of, I have to spank my child, because you just can't reason with a three or five or whatever year old. And he says he gets a lot after he presents, presents these statistics on spanking. Um, and I guess uh, anything you could say to that would be helpful. So people say, I have to hit my child because I can't reason with my child. Well, you know, it's interesting. For that thesis to be valid, what somebody would have to do to, to make that a, 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 even, even a personally vaguely justifiable thesis, what somebody would have to do is they would have to have tried for many years to reason with their child while demonstrating in their relationships with their other children, with the spouse, with friends, with everyone, extended family, everyone in their orbit. They would have to, to show rational, uh, uh, peaceful negotiations and interactions. They would have to have consistently shown that with no threat, no threat whatsoever of aggression or um, uh, violence or abandonment or intimidation with their child for many years. And then they would be able to say if the child had seen a consistent horizontal and vertical embodiment of peace and, and reason in interactions, if that child were simply still uh, unable, then it would be something that would have some credibility. But what happens is, I can guarantee you this is the case, what happens is people believe ahead of time that they cannot reason with children. And because they believe ahead of time that they cannot reason with children, well, lo and behold, <laughs> what happens? Well, they then approach children aggressively, uh, and, and what's right behind the first interaction is the threatened second interaction, which is uh, uh, aggression. And so what happens? Well, the child senses that there's aggression back in there and uh, therefore uh, is not going to listen to the pretend reason ahead of time. Because people who say you can't reason with children come into in their interactions with their children with that belief. And then, of course, it becomes, what do you call them? A self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes, it does. How tragic and awful is that? A self-fulfilling prophecy. And that self-fulfilling prophecy, of course, is, well, you know, I couldn't reason with my kids. So I had to hit them. And now I've hit them. Guess what? Can't reason with them. I was right. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. That's just <laughs> every bad parent has a bad southern accent. That is absolutely unfair and unjust. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, that would be my challenge would be to say to these parents, well, how long did you try the reason thing? And did the child see the reason thing with other parents uh, and with other siblings and with friends and with family? And did they see the parent negotiating with his or her parent in a peaceful and productive way? And, you know, peace and reason is a language that you need to teach children. Uh, and, I mean, I think it's pretty innate. 
but uh, it certainly needs to be reinforced. And if the child has been exposed to peace and reason in all of those interactions, uh, then um, and, and that generally precludes things like daycare and school because those are full of people who aren't reasonable or rational and kids. Uh, so, yeah, that would be my challenge. I've never heard of a parent who's tried for many years uh, and it's, you know, it's been successful with the other kids or it's been successful horizontally. The, the kids have seen that peace and negotiation modeled. And then lo and behold, the kids simply don't, uh, uh, the kids simply don't uh, end up speaking that language. That to me would be as incomprehensible as uh, only speaking English to a child and then the child breaking out into fluent Mandarin. No, the children will repeat whatever language they're taught. And if in the back pocket, in, you know, right behind every interaction is aggression, that's what the children will get and they will respond accordingly. So I had a question. I guess my question would be around, I know the idea of, um, of like, I know you've uh, expressed on in past shows the idea of, you know, you change, change who you are fundamentally and the type of people that are, you know, attracted to you or pulled in by you um change as well um my question is what happens when someone kind of slips under your radar if if you get what i'm saying um if you know a person who seems at first very engaging and then um suddenly you know your emotional defenses uh click um after the fact, after that person has kind of intercepted um, your circle, so to speak, um, I was just wondering uh, uh, what what would be your take on something like this? Like, uh, can you give me an mean, example? Yeah. Um, for instance, uh, I was recently approached uh, uh, by this guy who was a friend of a uh, mutual friend of mine. And, you know, you know, we would uh, talk and, you know, we'd have pretty decent conversations, but it um, turned out that uh, the last interaction that we had, uh, that he was pretty much in a way trying to get, uh, he was working for a, what is it? Uh, I think it's called you know, like a pyramid marketing uh, organization kind of thing. And like his friendliness or or demeanor that I that I thought was just, you know, pretty much just like genuine, you know, genuine niceness was really a ploy to kind of recruit, you know, and like I didn't I didn't I like my alarm system wasn't didn't go off right away until until you know pretty much it was like too late and like the sales pitch was already there and I was just like oh damn it <laughs> you know so I was just wondering like like what's your take like is like is this a foolproof system or you know does you know does occasionally just like do do irrational people slip through the cracks well, yes, of course. Irrational people can slip through the cracks. What's that old saying? There's no such thing as foolproof because fools are so ingenious. <laughs> um, well, I mean, look, all errors, this is, this is cheesy as all hell, but all errors are opportunities for learning. 
But that would sort of be, I think, a pretty, a pretty strong argument to make. So if, if somebody slips through your cracks, then you can sit to yourself and say, well, what did I miss? What were the signs ahead of time? And what does it tell me about me and my history and, and what's unprocessed that this person was able to, to slip through, right? Uh, and if you think about it from that context, can you think of any signs ahead of time that there may have been problems? Um, yeah. Yeah, I can. I can think of uh, a few sides of, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, when I met the person... Hello. Um, Are they here now? So, like I was saying, um, when I met the person, okay. I... I think they were introduced to me and and right away he had said something about uh, uh, God. So that should have been a red flag right away, you know. Um, something about God. That's <laughs> The fact that you don't remember what was said about God may be a sign. Was it like God? I can't believe that rat bastard God took my parking space this morning. I mean, how inconsiderate. <laughs> he can just make a new one and he goes and takes mine. My goodness, what is that? Uh, the fact that you can't remember it is because so what happens is so something got blurred in there in terms of God and yeah. uh, you didn't sort of circle back and free. So you already were, were not sort of circling back to see what was being said. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that so that's sense. your first clue, right? So uh, when somebody immediately doesn't start um, uh, talking about these things uh, and you sort of can have a very frank and honest discussion about it, then that's usually a good sign that uh, mm -hmm. something's awry already. Okay. All right. And also, um, your other take on on uh, on honesty and how something like that would like those kinds of interactions, you have to almost feel like your way through. Like, can I be honest with this person? Um, now, now, like in hindsight, now that I'm thinking about it, like I didn't feel comfortable even talking about philosophy with, with this person, you know, or even discussing any of those ideas. Um, so when so, you say slip through the cracks, <laughs> it's not quite as stealthy as that, is it? And I, look, I don't mean to laugh because, look, it still happens to me. Don't, don't, don't feel bad. It's pretty common, right? Because also with, with the truth uh, comes intimacy but also comes loneliness. And we're always looking for new people we can be honest with. So there's a kind of hunger and that can lead us open to exploitation, right? Yeah. Yeah, like, definitely. please don't be crazy. Please don't be crazy. Hey, you're a nice person. Please don't be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that mantra, please don't be crazy, uh, is there. And uh, what it does, of course, is it, it exposes a need. And uh, to have a need in the world is in many ways to be in danger, <laughs> right? Because there are so many people. It's, you know, like, um, what was I doing? I was watching a show the other day. Um someone apologized for something and the other person immediately started lording it over them. Mm. You know, like, uh, because, because apologizing to the person gave the apology, right, the person being apologized gave him power. And how do people use power in relationships? Most people use power in relationships the way that they've had power demonstrated to them in society. Right, which is that you use whatever one-upmanship you can. You, if somebody apologizes, if somebody has a need, then you attempt to exploit it for, uh, you know, personal or status uh, or financial profit. Mm. Okay. 
So right. is it true that you have um, a, a hunger for companionship or uh, are, are on the lookout for people who you can have an intelligent conversation with? Yeah, I'm, I, I, I feel like I do a pretty good job at, um, at funneling people who, like, I don't know, I feel like there are certain brackets, you know, there are certain people I keep as, you know, pretty much associates, um, you know, so, you know, I'm not completely alone and, uh, you know, they don't get to a certain layer of the onion, so to speak, um, until, you know, they've kind of proven to me in some way or another that they can be uh, trusted, if that makes any sense. You know, so. So, so far, I've like been noticing, like, you know, I have a good. Good amount of associates and very few close friends. And, and you know, I, I kind of like that. Um, but, you know, I'm always on the lookout for you know, for opportunities to, you know, really just, you know, be able to, you know, just relax and have like an honest interaction with someone. Right, right. And of course, there are people out there who are sort of trained in a sense to sniff out needs and to um, to exploit those, right? Particularly people who are interested in, uh, you know, selling you something or getting you involved in something like that. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Now, another question. What's your um, take on a lot of these, like, uh, these, what is, I think they're called um, direct marketing or, uh, or pyramid scheme, uh, word of mouth marketing corporations. I think they're called MLMs, I believe. Um, and I wondered, you know, what's your take, especially with like, you know, the job market uh, really drying up and, um, you know, the state pretty much, well, the economy pretty much going to hell in a handbasket and a lot of these organizations really taking it, I feel like they're taking advantage of people. And I just wanted to know what, what your, um, what your take would be on something like that. Yeah, those, I mean... I don't have, I haven't, I remember my mom was, we went to an Amway meeting when I was a kid uh, because she liked to <laughs> to talk with people. And what I, you know, fine products, you know, uh, why not? Uh, and, um, you know, as long as there's honesty and openness and frankness, then it's voluntary, right? But mm. the problem that I have is that they put a lot of pressure to turn personal relationships into financial relationships. In other words, go get your friends to buy this incredibly concentrated soap. Uh, and, you know, if you get friends involved, then you can get their profits and then they get friends involved and so on. And that is, I'm not sure, I'm not sure about that. Uh, mm. I don't like mixing economics with friendships, particularly. And so I have some reservations about that. But I think most importantly, I'm always concerned when, and this is not true for MLMs or anything like that, but I'm always sort of concerned when people say, um, listen, uh, <laughs> I know you don't have a lot of skills, uh, but you can make $100,000 a year. Uh, that's, I mean, that's just something to be skeptical of to begin with. To become really good at something, to become really effective at something, it takes a huge amount of work, a huge amount of work and a huge amount of time. And to begin to really make decent money at stuff, um, 
you know, I was programming for 15 years before I became a chief technical officer. Uh, it takes a long time to, be get, to get good at stuff. Uh, it was years before I became good at sales. And, and so people who are saying, listen, you can mine your existing relationships and make a fortune. Uh, I'm just a bit concerned that people are going to burn up their personal relationships and maybe end up with a little bit of money, but end up neither with money nor relationships in the long run. And I think that's a shame. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, uh, that pretty much answers uh, Sorry, the, the questions I, that I, I have. It's, it's kind of unfair to say to a friend, buy something that I will profit from, because you don't mm. really know if they're buying it because of the friendship or because of the thing itself. Yeah. And so I, I think it puts friends in a bit of an unfair position. That, that's all. Uh, because if it was just some salesperson knocking at their door, they'd probably say no. In fact, they'd be almost certain to say no. Yeah. But if, uh, if it's a friend and you say, no, well, you want to help your friend, you want to encourage them, you want them to do well at their job, and maybe this is their last shot financial, whatever, whatever. But, um, you know, I just, I think it's a bit of a conflict of interest to say to your friends, uh, buy, my, buy my products. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Particularly um, if it's around, you know, get them involved in something and they get other friends involved in something. It just seems like there's a bit of a conflict of interest. I mean, it's not immoral or anything, but it is. Um, uh, I think it it brings an element of economic calculation into a friendship that I'm not sure is very compatible with good friendships. Mm. Okay. I mean, if you're going to do MLM stuff and go door to door or whatever it is, well, you know, I don't know, door to door too. I have some, <laughs> I have some problems with. Um, you know, it's 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 even more invasive than those um, those phone calls that you get at dinner time, and those are yeah. pretty pretty rank. You know, I mean, this is my property. I mean, <laughs> don't come onto my property and try and sell me stuff unless, unless I've asked you to. Uh, that's sort of my perspective. Um, and don't phone me. You know, this is your captain calling. <laughs> you can get a free cruise. It's like, no, 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 no. You just took. Uh, you know, you just interrupted what I was doing, and you took twenty seconds, thirty seconds of my time, and I didn't ask you to. I just think that stuff pretty rank. Uh, but um, uh, so you know, among strangers, maybe it's okay. I just I don't know about mixing business with with friendship too well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, well, those were the. You know, the, pretty much the only things that were uh, on my mind as of late. But um, thank you for, you know, thank you for your answers. Oh, you're welcome. And there's great questions. Uh, just just in terms of the thing that you talked about at the beginning about the guy, he said something about God. Um, that's interesting uh, because that's almost like somebody putting a fishing line into the water. Because mm. then he finds out if you're religious, like if you're then, oh, God, Jesus, oh, yeah, you know, Zeus, whatever, right? Then yeah. he has a but, but and then if but if he just says something and then moves on quickly, if you're not religious, then you don't take the bait. But you're not gonna you know if he goes into a ten minute thing about God, then if you're not religious, he's gonna be. A, but if he just touches it, he's like seeing if that's of interest to you and then moving on. That's yeah. that's a sales thing. I, I don't think it's a particularly good sales thing, but it is kind of like a sales thing. Does that make any sense? Yeah. That does make a lot of sense. And so if somebody's you know, skipping like a, you know, you skip rocks on the flat water. Uh, if somebody's skipping over topics, looking for something that you're interested in, that's, um, that's like fishing. That's not quite the same as being honest and open. That would be a, a warning flag for me. Okay. All right. Yeah. It's, it's funny, man. I'm, I feel like I'm getting, I've gotten a lot better at, um, the, uh, the false, uh, detecting falsehood, um, yes. among people. Um, especially, you know, since I've been involved in uh, FDR and, and things like that. Um, 
but you know i was just you know i was just really curious about like you know the occasional um you know <laughs> uh you know slip through like intruder alert kind of deal look every now and then even the black belt has some student who's going to crack him in the nuts right yeah and that's all he just has to okay there's something i need to work on right <laughs> When yeah. they come from the sewage grates below with the flying fists of monkey death, <laughs> you know, when it's monkey picks fruit from my gonads, that's the one I need to watch out for. And so that's just a way of refining your defenses, so to speak. Okay. All right. It also, and generally, again, this is not to beat this, this to death too much, but generally we're most susceptible to manipulative tactics that we ourselves use. So if you are the kind of person who mentions a little bit about philosophy or a little bit about rationality or a little bit about you know, religious skepticism and sees if people are interested and then moves on quickly if they're not, then that's something that you will also most likely be susceptible to. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely guilty of doing that. Like, it's not, really... I didn't say guilty. I didn't say guilty. <laughs> you just have to be conscious of it as a strategy. That's all. It's not a bad thing to do. Uh, but, but okay. if you're conscious of it as a, as a strategy, then when someone else does it, you go, oh, this guy's doing what I do. And you'll be conscious of it. That's all. Okay. All right. Yeah, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. I think you just connected like A to B just now right yeah and that's what i mean when i say um mistakes are opportunities for self-knowledge because then you get to look you know what we're susceptible for is the unconscious stuff that we are doing and um so when someone gets through our defenses it's because we are using that same <laughs> you know we are doing that same death star run that they're doing and so we can't see it too well and that's the opportunity for self-knowledge which is great and it doesn't mean you can or can't do it it just means you got to be aware of it that's all mm. okay <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, great, great questions. Uh, if we can move on to the next caller, assuming we have one, uh, that would be great. All right. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, we have another caller. Uh, Tim, you're up next. Hello. 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 How are you doing? Can you hear me? Yeah. Good. Thanks. Uh, I guess from the accent, Tim is not a clever way of introducing yourself as Mitt Romney, but spelling it backwards. So we're sad about that, but we shall continue as best we can. <laughs> okay. Um, so listen, I saw, I, I came across you just uh, just actually about a week or so ago, and I saw um, originally through the interview you did with um, Peter Gray, who I'm really impressed by. I, 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 you sounded like you were quite impressed by him too. And I was, what I was wondering, and then I I'm saw... Sorry, then I saw Peter Gray, the psychologist oh, yeah. guy at School, yeah? Uh, a wider shade of, shade of gray. Fantastic. Yeah, just fantastic. I think, And I think what he's doing is, is fantastically important, I think, this whole thing of um, you know, finding out the evolutionary biology of our kind of educational instincts. And, um, when I was, um, and I was also wondering about how you dealt with, I mean, bearing in mind, obviously, you know, your, your, your kind of general thesis that things have been handed down over you know, 10,000 odd years from... Um, you know that authoritarian societies began as we could, you know, as we could start kind of farming livestock. I mean, basically with agriculture. Um, how you kind of deal with the fact that obviously these patterns of abuse are handed down over generations, and although you have to tackle your your immediate abusers, if you like, if your if your parents are, are in that in that in that modus operandi. Does it not? Do you? How, how do you kind of deal with that? I mean, bearing in mind that the the previous generation are obviously victims of circumstance too. I mean, I just wondered how you how you look at that. As far as you know, the the cycle uh, of abuse, um, 
I, I mean, I have sympathy. I, I really do. I have sympathy for parents who end up doing wrong, doing doing badly. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I, I face a challenge. I, I, I genuinely face a challenge, which is that when I was raised, when I was growing up, uh, I got endless amounts of, like truly, literally endless amounts of uh, immoral arguments about uh, abusive husbands, uh, bad bad husbands, right? Yeah. And I was taught that violence and and abuse and and uh, and all was simply unacceptable in relationships. That you just leave those relationships. And th- this was taught. This was taught to me uh, in in school. It was taught to me in in movies, in television shows, uh, in cartoons. I mean, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. It inundated the culture, and uh, and I have real sympathy for that perspective. Um, I didn't hear a lot of well. Remember that your abusive husband himself had a bad childhood, and maybe you should work with him. And right, it was just like you know, if you lay your hand on a woman in anger, then that is a deal breaker. And you know, if it happens once, it's going to happen again, and it's going to get worse. And sister, you need to get out of there, and you need to be stand stand firm and stand strong, and so on. And this happened. I mean, this happened. Um, you know, the statistics are you know, tripling of divorce rate in the 1970s when I was growing up. So this is what I was taught. And, and, and it was even worse than that in terms of the standards. It wasn't like, well, if your husband is a drunk and he beats you and, you know, he pisses on your cat and spends all your money and, right, then, the, you know, obviously that was you got to leave him and don't look back. And, you know, it's a, but it was, you know, if your husband is just a little dull, you know, if he's kind of pedantic, if he's kind of like a, a tweed-elbowed academic who can't quite emotionally connect with you in that Joyce Carol Oates kind of way. <laughs> I mean, if, if your husband is just – if you're just kind of dissatisfied, if he's just kind of emotionally unavailable, even if he's a good provider and a, a good dad, you know, if you're, just, if you're just not really that satisfied in your relationship, uh, then the best thing to do is, is to divorce him. Uh, you know, I, I went to the movies and I saw, you know, Kramer versus Kramer three or four times when I was um, – I don't know when it came out late. I was like 12 or 13, I think. And I, I, you know, paid over and over to see that. One time I just sat through twice because I was really trying to absorb and trying to process this because Dustin Hoffman's character in that movie was not an abuser. He was not beating. He was not drunken. He was just kind of immature and not really very emotionally available and and so on. And Meryl Streep, you know, walked out and was kind of the heroine and she was not criticized in the movie. It was just... You know, he wasn't there for her. He kind of worked a little bit late, and and uh, and then she just she just left because she couldn't stand it. And so, what I absorbed from that, and I I watched so many movies about divorce, and I'm I'm still quite fascinated by divorce. I, I'm really fascinated by divorce because it's it was such a huge topic, and it had such an enormous influence on myself and all of my friends. I mean, with one or two exceptions, all of my friends came from single mom headed homes of divorce. Divorced. There was not a widowed dad among them. There was not a dad who uh, had uh, gone into the military. They were all uh, all divorced uh, because they were either in bad relationships or in unsatisfying relationships or whatever. And I absorbed that lesson. I absorbed that lesson. And I mean, as a philosopher, my goal is universalize, 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 universalize. That's all I'm into. If it can't be universalized, I don't care about it. <laughs> Right. Okay. I mean, clearly, Freddie Mercury, the best singer ever. Well, I mean, obviously, that's a universal standard. Doesn't even need. There's no debate on that. But um, if it can't be universalized, then I don't care. And so, the way that I processed it was, I said to myself, "Okay, well, um, relationships that people choose should not even can, but should be ended 
if they're even just a little bit unsatisfying for long enough. Now, I was reading this article the other day about how some women, a significant number of women, um, wish their husbands would just have an affair so they could end the relationship because they're nice. They're, the husbands are nice guys and good providers, and good, good dads, but they're just not that satisfied in the relationship. So they wish they'd have an affair so they could legitimately get a divorce without hurting him too much. I mean, oh my God in heaven, <laughs> what a nightmare is that? And so I, uh, I universalized that. And the way that I thought about it was, okay, look, you choose your husband, you choose your wife. You get to test drive them, you get to date them, you get to uh, get, get engaged to them. The relationship takes many years usually to go to the fruition of marriage. And that's a, a really chosen relationship. Well, you don't choose your parents. And clearly our standards should be higher for involuntary relationships than they are for voluntary relationships. Of course they should be. That's, I mean, anybody who argues otherwise is a slave to the matrix, <laughs> frankly. I know that's not an argument, but if it needs to be argued, there's no point because the person can't reason even remotely. So we have to have higher standards for voluntary relationships than we do for involuntary relationships. Sorry. We have to have higher standards for involuntary relationships rather than voluntary relationships. And so uh, if little bits of dissatisfaction and abuse and so on uh, are enough to, to end a marriage and all of the impact that that has on the children, um, the, the incredibly negative and destructive impacts it has on the children um, – then that should be true of all relationships and it should be even more true for involuntary relationships. And that argument, I mean, I, I've, I've thought about this for decades. I cannot find a flaw in it. I cannot, I mean, I'm, I'm open. I'm open to hearing flaws, but I simply cannot find a flaw in it. The other, of course, the other argument that I received, um, this is some, to, to a large degree from contemporary feminism, though it's not the only place it came from. But the other argument I got was where there is a power disparity Virtue is more required. And the greater the power disparity, the more the virtue is required, right? If you're co-workers uh, at a company, then you can date each other, you know, assuming it's not against company policy, without any particular yeah. problems. But if you're the boss and the secretary, then yeah. you have more authority and therefore you can't, right? Because it's sort no. of an abuse of authority. So the, the standards go up in a relationship where the power disparity goes up. And so the right. standards of behavior for parents must be far higher than for any other relationship because it's the greatest power disparity. Yeah, sure. Right? And so, so the, all of these lessons, right, the voluntarism, and if you're not satisfied in relationships, you should end them no matter what the consequences to others, right? So you, you should end a marriage uh, if you're not satisfied, despite that the fact that there are hugely negative consequences to the children, right? Yeah. So those are the uh, the issues that I brought to the table when it came to um, you know so so my sort of analogy which I've used before is is that uh, a parental relationship is sort of like an arranged marriage, right? Yeah. And if you want your wife who's been assigned to you and and has to marry you, if you want your wife to love you, you have to treat treat her even better than if she'd voluntarily chosen you, right? Because you have to overcome the involuntary nature of the relationship. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, putting all of these things together, the arguments about voluntarism within the parent-child relationship once you become an adult, I mean, we, we have to ban divorce before we ban, um, you know, parent-child separations, right? Yeah. And, and everybody says that divorce is an essential right. And I, I agree with them. I think divorce is an essential right because without voluntarism, there really can't be quality. There can't be quality without voluntarism. We all understand that when we deal with the de Department of Motor Vehicles, right? And yeah. so, um, yeah, but now, of course, it is, um, uh, it is a tough idea. Uh, it, it is a tough idea because it is so inescapable and it is so unarguable 
that it, it you know the only way that people can generally react if they really don't like the idea is through anger uh, is through you know hurling monkey poo <laughs> so to speak because right, right, right. they can't find a logical flaw and so they simply have to go around crying that this is the most terrible idea in the history of the world uh, while if you press them on specifics as to what's so bad about it they can't really tell you they'll just you know throw all these words around and so that's natural um, that's natural uh, it is you know it's very tragic a lot of parents um, uh, have acted badly based on the reality uh, that the concept of parent-child separation uh, when the child is an adult is simply taboo. Mm. And because it's taboo, you know, if, if divorce was completely illegal and taboo, so to speak, then husbands, I would assume, would behave worse. Mm. Sure. Uh, in the same way that if you can't choose your provider, then the provider has very much less incentive for quality service, so to speak. Is, as, as, a matter of, as a matter of, is it a kind of an issue that you have personally or, or not? Or is this just something that you, you've just observed? Oh yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely a personal issue for me, for sure. Yeah, definitely a personal issue, and so you, um, okay. yeah, and I've I've talked about this many times before, so you can dig back through the old casts if you want. But um, but yeah, it is. Um, so so my goal, my goal is to promote quality, uh, and um, well, to promote truth and blah blah blah, right? But but the the pragmatic result of truth is is quality, and yeah. you know why do we want voluntarism in society, right? In other words, why is statism so bad? Because it's involuntary. Uh, because you cannot have productive and efficient and sustainable solutions to things like poverty and addiction and uh, ignorance and so on. Without voluntarism, you can't have quality. Uh, and the place we most need quality is in the family, and therefore the place where we most need voluntarism is within the family. And yeah. I think that if parents understand that they cannot take their children's perpetual relationship for granted, then they're going to treat them better. I mean, because voluntarism is quality. Uh, there's simply no better way to promote quality than to promote voluntarism. And my goal is to have as peaceful and rational a family system as humanly possible. <laughs> and so, uh, I, uh, you know, that's always been, been my goal. And um, some people like it, uh, love it, and some people have taken that those arguments as opportunities to really improve the relationships with their children. And I've read letters on the show to that effect. And other people have reacted, uh, I guess, somewhat less nobly. Um, that's, of course, the choice of the individual. Can I ask you one, another question? Are there many people? Because I'm one thing. One of the things I was impressed at by looking uh, just just finding out about you over the last week or so is the fact that you've integrated so many different things. I mean, that you've integrated psychology with philosophy, with economics, with everything. I mean, it's like a kind of a whole vision. Are there many people, is there anybody else, you know, that you're aware of at the moment who's doing something similar? No, I don't uh, know of anyone who's doing something similar. You know, and that, that, that of course, is no argument as to there could be 10 million people out there doing something similar. Uh, I just yeah. don't know. Uh, I don't know the degree. Philosophy is the old discipline. I mean, because uh, it, it encompasses science and, and self-knowledge and relationships and economics and so on. Uh, and all of, these relate, all of these grew out of philosophy to begin with, particularly psychology. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm certainly doing my best to start from first principles and expand them wherever possible. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's fairly unique but of course there may be other people out there I think there are certainly people who've done individually way better jobs on, on things but I don't know about the unified field theory that I'm working on if anyone's done as well but uh, uh, we'll see 
I mean, I think the unified theory, I mean, there was a thing, I, I, I was kind of a big fan of Aldous Huxley. I don't know if, you, if you've read very much Aldous Huxley, but one of his big themes was um, the integration of, you know, that we, we need to move from being special. We need to include generalization with specialization that, you know, we've kind of we're, we specialized, uh, specialized ourselves to such an extent that it's become really unhealthy. And then one these people, one these kind of bridge builders bringing these things, bringing these different disciplines back together again, one these kind of an overview. And that's kind of the impression I have of what you're doing. Yes, and I think that not many people have integrated what divorce means. You know, divorce is, one of the reasons I'm so fascinated about it is marriage was originally uh, for life, no matter what. And you had to stay and you had to go back and it was illegal to divorce. And it was only, I think, in the 70s that Canada made it legal to divorce without an act of parliament. It was illegal in the Catholic religion and so on, all of these things. And divorce yeah. is, is anarchic in a very fundamental way. Because it is saying that relationships, even relationships that you have a vow for lifelong companionship, can be broken at will. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you can divorce a husband, why not a state? If you yeah. can divorce a husband, why not a parent? If you can divorce a, a, a husband, why not a brother? Yeah. And it's such a fundamentally powerful concept. You know, people say, mm -hmm. well, there's a social contract and so on. Uh, as if that's sort of an absolute that you can't break. But marriage, when people get married, almost all of them say it's, you know, forever until death do us part for better or for worse in sickness and health and richness and in poverty and so on. And yet mm. then they, you know, 50% of marriages, uh, people just say, ah, you know what? No. <laughs> right? I mean, it's one, it's one of the things. Exactly. It's one of the things I kind of liked in that. I, I can't remember if, if uh, Peter Gray was talking about that. I think he was in this talk with you. He was talking about the fact that, you know, you might be in a hunting, you might, in a hunting gathering band and, uh, you know, you just kind of got pissed off with your parents. You weren't getting on. You just went and joined another hunting gathering band that you weren't kind of stuck anywhere, you know, that you could always move on, um, which I think is kind of an interesting, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. That? There was... Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, there's been so many factors that have influenced the demise in the quality of families that it's just ridiculous. Uh, divorce has negatively impacted families enormously. Single momhood, which is you know the vast majority of single parent households are headed by mom. Single momhood has uh, can, can catastrophically declined the quality uh, of of the family. Uh, the fact that taxes are so high that mm, generally two people to maintain any reasonable standard of living, both people need to work, stick their kids in daycare, has massively eroded the quality of family life and the bond between parents and children. You know, it's kind of funny, you know, because, <laughs> you know, I try not to get too annoyed at, at hypocrisy, although, because <laughs> if you want, it's a buffet that never empties and only seems to get bigger <laughs> and bigger. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, parents, uh, when you get older, parents will say, well, you know, there's this bond and, you know, we, we do everything for you and so on. But, uh, you know, significant chunks of kids, uh, their parents hit, uh, you know, three months or six months or nine months, they just get thrown in daycare from, you know, <laughs> the morning until the evening. And yeah. um, that's not good. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm very traditional. I'm a very, you know, it's funny. Uh, 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 one day I'll do a checklist of how much I have in common with <laughs> conservative Christians. But conservative Christians are deeply concerned and they lead in many cases in social criticisms. They lead with a criticism of the erosion of family. Mm. And they say the family unit. Now, of course, they, they go straight on homosexual stuff and gay marriage. I don't care about that stuff. But um, they will say that the erosion of character, the erosion of quality, the erosion of uh, utility, uh, the erosion of, of progress, uh, the erosion of civility, uh, the increases in criminality and addiction and so on, all have their roots 
in the erosion of the family unit. And I'm incredibly conservative when it comes to the family. The family unit, you know, <laughs> traditional family unit works really, really well. And yeah. the degree to which it doesn't work is the degree to which society as a whole is not going to work. And uh, I am very much, um, you know, I don't know, some people think that I'm sort of, sort of radical when it comes to the family. No, no, no. I'm incredibly conservative when it comes to the family. Just look at my life. You know, I have, uh, I guarantee you it's going to be a lifelong <laughs> relationship with my wife. Um, you know, we invest heavily uh, in, in our, our daughter uh, and um, I'm a stay-at-home dad. I mean, that's how strongly I take these family bonds. Uh, I will never have an affair. My wife will never have an affair. We'll never even be tempted. Uh, we are going to be together till one of us drops off <laughs> into the infinite zero of black space. Uh, and uh, that is incredibly traditional. Uh, I am not a radical at all when it comes to the family. What is happening to the family now is radical. You got two parents out there and kids in daycare and divorces all over the place and women, the majority of women under 30 uh, having uh, kids out of wedlock. That is radical. That is radical. And I'm just trying to get us back to stuff that worked for thousands of years. That, that to me is important. Uh, and I don't know any way to do it except through the promotion of voluntarism. I but, mean, that's how marriage was supposed to be uh, improved through divorce and so on. I think fantastic. That's the way it should be. So what you're saying is a threat of the fact that you can leave is the thing that's going to make the marriage better. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, I mean, sure. it's not, yeah, yeah, I yeah. wouldn't put it down like a threat, right? But, but no. if you only had one cell phone provider that was mandated by the government and it was yeah. illegal to ever not get a yeah. cell phone or switch providers, then we understand yeah. that the quality would go to hell, right? It's not the yeah, threat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. It's the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So it just keeps you on your toes, basically. Of course. I mean, look, I mean, one of the ways that you can guarantee that I'm going to be a great dad is I promote voluntarism within the family, right? I mean, you know that. You know that for sure, that I'm going to be the best possible dad that I can be because I strongly accept voluntarism within the family. It also means that I'm going to be the best possible husband that I can, can be, that I'm going to continually ask my wife and my daughter for how I can do things better, for what they would prefer, for what would make them happier, because I am – really into voluntarism, which means that there's going to be quality. If I believed that my daughter could never, ever leave me, no matter what I did, if I believed that my wife could never, ever leave me, no matter what I did, would I be so concerned with uh, pursuing quality? Well, yeah. did you ever get the IRS to call you up and say, listen, how's your tax life going? Is there anything we could do different or better? Would you like to opt out? Would you like to uh, donate to charity instead of donating to us? What would work for you as a citizen as far as they would? Because they're never going to call you like that, right? Yeah, yeah, so I mean, basically, you, can, you have a kind of movie. I remember seeing that movie of The English Patient. Did you ever see that film? I did. Yeah, which I mean, if it had voluntarism in that relationship, things might have turned out slightly differently. I'm afraid that I don't remember much of that film. Uh, <laughs> well, I, she, I think Chris, I was necking, but I don't it was, remember. Uh, right. <laughs> it was Kristen, Kristen, well, Kristen, um, what's her name? Uh, anyway, she falls in love with Ray Fiennes. Kristen Scott. Is married to, is, is married to Colin Firth, who is a sort of traditional husband. She's deeply in love with him, but she's terrified of losing her husband, her husband even though the marriage is really kind of boring. Um, and she's a slave to convention, and, that, and, and the whole thing ends up unhappily ever after for everybody involved. Yes, yes. Well, of course, um, kind of you would question why she had gotten married to that man in the first place. Now, of course, there is this, this desperate myth, right? This terrible, awful, desperate myth. The grass is greener myth, right? Most divorces are initiated by women, and generally it's because they feel they can do better elsewhere, right? right. And it's not true. And we know that it's not true statistically because 50 like, – uh, I can't remember what the percentage of first marriages that fail, but the percentage of second marriages that fail is, is, is even much higher. 
right? So yeah. if people had, if they were correctly identifying where the grass is greener, then they would end up where the grass is greener. But what happens is uh, people get lazy in relationships. Uh, they they cease to contribute. They cease to to be honest. They they drop in front of the TV and they end up getting bored. They stop taking up new things. They stop taking up new vacations. They stop finding new friends. They stop having new topics of conversation. They stop being interesting and then they complain that their marriage is boring. And then they have this fantasy that if they get out of this boring marriage, there's this weird thing called the marriage that's boring, not them, but the marriage. And if they just get out of that marriage and they go to some new person, then everything will be better. And if that were the case, then the success rate of second marriages should be far higher. But in fact, it's far lower than the success rate. And the success rate of third marriages is lower still, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it's not true. Uh, you know, this, the, the, the challenge of divorce uh, is um, – oh, yeah, I, I just did a, a premium podcast on this. So if anyone's a Bronze Plus, they can go and check it out at uh, board.freedomainradio.com. But, um, you know, there's multiple, multiple challenges to divorce. And if people, you know, they get divorced, they don't have kids. That's their lookout. But once they have kids, uh, it's a very, very serious decision. And I think it's taken far too lightly and without opportunity. And it goes on to fail. You know, one out of ten American kids – um, lives through three or more marriages from their parents. So, I mean, what would you do? I mean, like, if you were, say, I mean, not, you know, so if it's a woman in a marriage, hello? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, oh, you're still here. If it's a woman in a marriage with um, a guy, the guy's kind of a person, she's not really in love with him, it's going to be, she's not really that happy. Um, he's kind of a, you know, he's kind of a bit of an, an autocrat, um, which, you know, what, I mean, what would you, and she's got two kids, what would you suggest she did? Well, I mean, that's that's a very theoretical. This is a, this is a specific. This yeah. is a specific situation. That's a very. That's a very well. Look, first, first and foremost, uh, I would yeah. say that there's a huge amount that can be done to improve the quality of the marriage without leaving it. Right. Because she did love him at one point, and she chose him. Yeah. After you know, it's like if I test drive a car for two years, and then a year later I hate the car when I could have bought any car on the lot. That's clearly a kind of a ridiculous position to have, right? Yeah. Ah, I hate this car. I'm going to say, yeah, I'm just going to drive this car into a cliff. It's like, well, you got to test drive all these different cars. You test drive this car for two or three years, and now you hate it? Are you kidding me? Like, just to recognize that it's a fundamentally ridiculous position is, yeah. you know. And look, I mean, I don't know. Maybe the guy's got a brain tumor. He's turned into an asshole. I don't know. Of course, if it's a brain tumor, he's not an asshole. But <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Yeah. But, um, yeah, the first thing that I would say is um, that you've got to prevent yourself from getting into these positions. Right. I mean, it's like saying, so a guy, you know, he's got stage four lung cancer. What should he do? Well, you shouldn't have smoked 30 years ago. I don't know. Right. And so the reality is um, what you, the way that divorce used to be controlled and the way it should be rationally controlled is that society should recognize that divorce is a massive and catastrophic failure if there are children involved. I mean, it's a failure if there are adults involved, but it's a catastrophic failure where kids yeah. are involved. And, yeah. you know, so if, um, if somebody comes and says, uh, I'm, I'm getting divorced, um, then, you know, I don't know what, what the social equivalent would be. I don't know. Somebody comes and says, uh, I've decided to become a prostitute. I've joined a motorcycle gang and I'm going to sell crack to children. I've, you know, whatever it is, right? Uh, then people would say, well, that's really bad. <laughs> like, what are you doing? That's really bad. You got to not do that unless there's absolutely no other options. 
right? But yeah. divorce is kind of like an empowerment. It's like, you know, it's not cool exactly, but it's, um, you know, all you ever see, uh, if you ever want to read these, you read the divorce section of the Huffington Post, which I will occasionally check out. You know, it's all about, well, I felt really bad about my divorce, but then I realized what an empowering and growth opportunity it was and how great it was and how my kids are doing fine and my husband's happier and I'm happier and, you know, what a great thing it was in hindsight. Bullshit. Yeah. Bullshit. Anyone who yeah. breaks a vow of a lifetime at the expense of their children has failed really badly and done great harm. And that doesn't mean that, you know, people got to stay in, you know, shouldn't, should never be illegal. I get that. But if it were, if people recognize the harm that it did to get divorced, I can damn well tell you that they'd be a lot more careful about who they got married to. And that's what yeah. I mean when you say, well, somebody's really unhappy in a marriage. Well, you should have chosen better who you married. You should have had the, the, the discussion about values, about, about religion, about child-rearing methods, about discipline, about education, about you know, the extent to which in-laws are going to be a part of life. Uh, all of these things need to be discussed beforehand. But people sail off on a sea of <laughs> hormones, uh, sex, adult minds, and bizarrely optimistic expectations just to assume that all these knots are going to tie themselves or untie themselves over time. And it's nonsense. Have these conversations ahead of time, and you can eliminate 90% of your problems. So, you know, the, the point of making things voluntary is not to make everybody's relationship perfect, but to remind people that it really matters who you choose to get married to. It really, really, it's probably the most important decision that you will make that doesn't just involve yourself in your life. And mm. if you need to get out of a marriage, I mean, just have to accept that it's a catastrophic failure that's incredibly harmful and destructive to your children and that, you, yeah. that there's no restitution that's possible for it. Uh, that's, that's, you know, but, but unfortunately we cover all of that stuff up, right? We pretend that it's uh, well, you know, they tried, it didn't work. Uh, and now they're great co-parents and they're happier. It's like, no, 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 <laughs> come on. That's not the way it goes. Mm. Yeah. Sorry. I had a long answer, but I hope that makes some kind of sense. No, no, no. That's cool. That's great. All right. I think we have someone else. Great. Okay. So that's great. For those who were bored that's... by the topic of divorce, uh, <laughs> we, we should probably move on, but thanks. Let's, great divorce, let's divorce ourselves. Okay. Thanks a lot. Uh, just, just for my own, uh, my own feedback on it, I wouldn't mind a little more examination. Um, I know that it's definitely a huge topic for me as well. So, and, and, and for a lot of people, but, you can um, ask a question. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying in general. Um, I'm not, I'm not bored of the topic. I don't have a question at the moment, a specific. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what my, I'll tell you what my one last question on this will be. Okay, so you've got somebody. Let's just say, you know, you've got this whole these kind of patterns of abuse being handed down over generations, which they, you know, they, that seems to be a fairly kind of general thing um, in 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 our society. So you've got say a woman who's attracted to a guy who's, and it's a kind of a dysfunctional thing. She's kind of, you know, the whole thing about. Um, battered wives and everything, women getting drawn to particular kinds of men because it kind of is a continuation of some family pattern, you know, something to do with their, you know, their dads or whatever. Um, and, you know, you know, it's not a really fantastically rational decision. It's some, something that's sympathetic in the sense that, you know, they're, they're driven towards it and, it's, and, and, and then it becomes painful. Um, and, of course, and then there are kids Sorry, involved. Sorry, what, what becomes painful? Well, it got just a little bit too abstract for me, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. What I'm saying is this, okay. So you have a woman, okay. So she says so she, so she comes from a family where, emo, which is emotionally challenging, put, to put it that way. So she has a relationship abusive. with her dad, which is, sorry? Abusive? Abusive, yeah, abusive. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not trying to put um, words in your mouth. I'm just not sure what emotionally challenging means. Honestly, yeah, no, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm English, you know. We, oh, yeah, yeah right, right, right. Emotionally challenging. In other words, it involves emotions. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Got it. 
<laughs> yeah, abusive is a better word. Yeah. All right. So, so that she's had that kind of relationship. She's damaged by it all, and then she kind of goes and walks straight into another relationship with a man, who you know reminds her of her dad, and she you know she's she's drawn to it. And it does seem to happen a great deal. Um, you know, she thinks it looks good to begin with, but it, you know, but it but it happens. You know, and then she's stuck in it, and she's got, and then a little while down the road, she's got two kids, and she's kind of being dictated a lot by to by by guilt, as she was in her own family, a family at birth, um, and then she's stuck in it. You know, now you could say that right from the outset, she should have been much more rational about it. She should have checked the marriage out, and you know, maybe she thought she was doing it, but she she struggled because of her own kind of background. Um, do you see what I'm saying? So she's she's gone from one kind of abusive situation into another one, not meaning to, um, but simply because she was she was conditioned in that way. Look, I, let me let me answer that as best I can. I, I have no problem with any of that. I have no yeah. problem with any of that. All that I ask of anybody is, don't be hypocritical. Don't have higher standards for children than you have for adults. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So if the mom says, look. <laughs> Because of my childhood history, I've made a whole series of bad decisions, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, then she can't have higher standards for her children than she has for herself as an adult, right? So let's say she was married when she was 25. Yeah. Okay. So when her kid is 10 and makes a bad decision, what's she going to say? You've got 15 years to go. It's okay. You can still keep making bad decisions for 15 years because that's what happened to me. Yeah. Or is she, but that's not what she's likely to say, is it? Yeah, but that's not the question that she's trying to she's, – she's, you know, judging her children. It's just simply that she's in that situation herself. Sorry, I think we may have crisscrossed there. In, no, what I'm saying is you're, you're, saying, you're, you're saying basically – so she finds herself in that situation. And you're saying, well, and, you know, if she is in that situation, she shouldn't stop passing judgment on her kids if they start making bad decisions. Is that, is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, of course. Mm. Because uh, if she is an adult – made look there's no decision a child can really make at the age of 10 or 15 that is as important as who you get married to and who you bring precious dependent helpless life into being with at the age of yeah. 20 right all the child's decisions are far less important than the parent's decision of who to marry and who to have children with is that fair to say yeah no that's fair yeah Okay, so you can't give yourself a get-out-of-jail-free card for bad decisions as an adult and then impose strict standards on your children. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, sure. Of course, I agree. Yeah. You can't have higher standards for less important things from younger people, <laughs> right? That's my sort of – Sure. Right? So, so, so that's the challenge, right? Because if you're a parent and you get divorced, then you've just given up credibility with your kids. And then you have authority, but you don't have credibility. And that is why divorce, I think, fundamentally is so damaging to children. Is that their parents have authority over them, but the children don't respect the parents. And, and why? how could they? It's not, you know, just willful. How could they? No, I understand that. But, you know, bearing in mind that, so, like, so she gets herself into this marriage. She doesn't, she doesn't think it's going to go wrong. She's kind of drawn to it in some kind of neurotic way. And then she's in it, and it's still, and it's abusive in some way. Um, and... Okay. Well, well, I mean, sorry, abusive in some way. What does that mean? Does well, that, she's, that well, she's, she, so let's just say she has an abusive dad and then she's drawn to an abusive husband. Okay. Okay. And then she's in it and she's, you know, it's a sort of compulsion in some way or another and she's, and she's stuck in this thing and then she has her kids and all the rest of it. Um, you know, it's like, 
I, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to say it's, it, it's, it, it's, it, was, it was a good thing for her to do. I'm just simply saying that people do get stuck in these things. They do get caught up in these things. And of course, she's not in any position to to sit and, to to judge her children. But you know, if she then if she then decides I want to get divorced because look, I, I've really seen why I'm drawn in this particular direction. I can see why I've got myself into another abusive relationship, and I think it's better I get out of it from everybody's point of view, including my kids. Mm-hmm. Would that make sense? Or totally. Yeah, I mean, look, if, yeah. if if she's getting beaten up, yeah, I agree. I I, th- I yeah. mean, I, I don't think people should stay in violent relationships at all. I mean, not but, necessarily even but, physically violent, but I mean, you know, we just, you know, mentally abusive. It doesn't have to be physical violence. Oh, like he calls her names and stuff? Yeah, that kind of thing. You're putting somebody down, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously she should do everything she conceivably could yeah, to yeah. alleviate the situation, right? Sure. Okay. Everything, anyway. right? I mean, yeah. but but the other thing, of course, is that I have a tough time with people who say, well, I'm a drunk because my dad was a drunk. Yeah. You know, these correlations have been so well known for so many decades that anybody who says, well, I came from a violent family, but I had no idea I was at risk for violence myself is damn well lying or has been living in a cave. Yeah. Right? it's, It's like somebody who's smoking now who's saying, and not smoking in the good way, right? but smoking hot, but somebody who smokes, who then says, I had no idea that smoking was bad for me. It's just precious. It's just nonsense. Yeah. Right? Somebody mm-hmm. who's, who's, who's both of your parents are 350 pounds, and you say, I had no idea that I was in any danger of, getting over, of becoming overweight. Mm. Right? That, 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 I mean, that's just not true. Mm. Now, either somebody has gotten the information that they need and has ignored it, or they have simply refused to get any information despite the fact that there's huge risk factors, in which case they're responsible for both, right? If, I, you know, if, if the information is absolutely needed but I refuse to get it, I'm still responsible for that, right? Sure, yeah. You know, if, I, if, I, if my foot starts turning black and I don't go to the doctor, then I'm kind of responsible, right? And so the, the correlations between histories and historical relationships and future relationships, it, it, it's so well known. I mean, there's nobody who, who, who can credibly claim, who's got an IQ over 12, there's nobody who can credibly claim that they had no idea that there was a risk factor for abuse in relationships called, I was abused as a child or I witnessed abusive relationships. That would be like somebody growing up in a Greek household saying, I had no idea I was at risk of speaking Greek. Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, you mean you got to do something about it? Yeah, of course, of course. I yeah. mean, so yeah, somebody who says, "Well, I'm a drunk because my dad was a drunk," is like, "Well, why aren't you a drunk because your dad was a drunk?" <laughs> I mean, you know how destructive it is. You experienced it. You lived through it, and you know, I don't know. As I said in a previous show, I, I do not know how to care people, care for people, my friend, without giving them responsibility. That to me is yeah. love. Loving humanity is giving that hot potato that hot healing potato <laughs> called responsibility to people. I don't know how to help people. I don't know how to love people. I don't know how to have any respect for humanity other than to give people responsibility for their choices, just as I accept responsibility for mine. I mean, that's called being a grown-up, and that's, that's life. No, that's fair enough. No, it's fair enough. No, no, I agree. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. All right, let's move on to the next caller. Okay. We have uh, two more people on the line. We have uh, Ryan first. Cage match. Sorry, go on. Cool. 
How you doing, Steph? I'm great. How you doing, man? Good. Is my sound doable? Uh, I'd hit it. Awesome. Cool. So I, I came on. I'm feeling kind of nervous here, surprisingly nervous, um, which I think is a really cool thing. So that means something important to talk about. And that means newness. I, uh, Good. Newness and depth. What's that? That means newness and depth. So good. I think so. <laughs> I, I was wanting to talk about this kind of problematic thing that comes up for me when I try to pursue romantic relationships. And I just wanted to get, see if you had any advice for me or anything like that. I might. Hit me with cool. your problems. Hmm. Where to start? Um, I'll just start here with some recent, somewhat recent relationships. Uh, what happens for me, I've noticed, is no, I have a, I have certain things I'm interested in in a relationship. For me, I feel like I'm really selective, and I have really high standards. And uh, every once in a while, I come across a woman who I do feel uh, that I am interested in. And when this does happen, it seems that seems that we get to a point where. Well, some of the stuff I really value, for example, would be uh, just being open, being really honest, and just sharing in the moment, that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm a really curious person, too. And what seems to happen is I feel like I give, I give a lot from my side, all that stuff I just mentioned. And uh, for one reason or another, when I, when I put that out there, um, we might have strong connections for for a while but at some point um they just it's like they eject they just push away and um it like in the past couple i guess you could say relationships maybe just the women that i've kind of been interested in and we've talked and maybe had made stronger connections the past couple of times this has happened it's happened to where it's it's like they just it's like a really sudden uh, ejection from the relationship. It's like I'll say, for example, I'll send texts or I'll send them messages like, hey, what's going on today, you know, whatever. And they just won't respond. And this and is after there's been some romantic involvement? Kissy-facey, um, huggy-huggy, that feelings, kind of stuff? I would say. Strong feelings. On both of your part? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Is this after you've been on a date? Yeah. Shit, there was a big pause there. Was it a date? <laughs> or was it, hey, let's go out with some well, friends and I'll call it a no, date? Like, the past couple of people have been online. So it's like a date. What do you mean by date? I mean, we, we talk, say, for example, on Skype or... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm talking old-fashioned, right? Right. So, Way too uh, old-fashioned. <laughs> right. So, so what happens, though, is um, it's like there's this sudden dropout and... yeah. I feel like I'm really hanging, like I'm left hanging, like I've given all this stuff, like all this curiosity, empathy. <laughs> Sorry, just for me, uh, a date where you're left hanging may have entirely <laughs> different connotations. Well, you're not actually physically oh, hanging no, at all, but rather hanging. pointing northward. Anyway, go on. <laughs> right, so, so I feel like I'm, I'm kind of left out there with this big matzo ball hanging out. I'm use <laughs> an interesting metaphor for you. Yeah. Only one. But uh, one. I'm, it's like I'm left hanging there. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm talking about it 
kind of in a funny tone here, but it's something that when that happens for me, it's painful. Is it really puts me? It really triggers me. Yeah, and makes me feel a lot of strong emotions. Like uh, sometimes I feel irritation. Like a part of me comes up that says, you know, these these women should see what what they have to choose from here. It's like this awesome guy who really wants all these great things. Yeah, and they're just like they just push away. It's like what are they thinking? And then another part of me comes up, which I think that part to take an IFS approach. I think that part is protecting this part, and uh, it's a part that feels a lot of despair, like a really old part, like a kind of a rejection, like. Like I put myself out there and they rejected it. No, not not that that's yeah. a rational thing. You know, I can rationally. No, say, it's not oh, irrational. It's not irrational. I mean, they have rejected it, right? Right. What I, I, mean, what I mean, you're not making it, that up, right? Sure, sure. I mean, if the woman keeps calling you and asking you out, and then you say she's rejecting me, that's irrational. But if they stop returning calls, if they stop right responding, then there is a rejection there, of course, right? So I, I, it's not irrational. Sure. Does that I, make sense? I think what I mean by irrational might be. The way I'm thinking about it is, no, it's not irrational, but uh, I feel like, um, hmm. no, that's a mm. good point. Uh, mm. uh. All right, and do you want to keep talking, or do you want me to ask my usual series of blundering questions? <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, do you think that's a pretty good chunk there? Wanna... All right, let's, let's go. Well, first of all, I've been there. So I understand I have had a number of sort of pseudo-relationships where there's been some significant interest on the part of women, you know, where they've even asked me out and we've had seemed to have had a great deal of fun and they sort of at the end of the evening they say, let's get together again. And then they just vanish. Yeah. Can't get a hold of them, can't find them, <laughs> you know, whatever, right? right. Um, and uh, so that is strange uh, so yeah I mean I've, I've been there and I think everybody who's been in the dating arena has been in that situation at least once so right. uh, so I sympathize you're not alone in that um, so tell me about reciprocity when you were a boy in your family cool um, let's see a boy well, I guess I could start with saying my parents were divorced when I was really young. So that was around when I was about two or three. So I never really knew my mom. So I've never known my mom. You never knew your mom? Sorry no. for my surprise, but statistically that's not common. Why is that? Well, because normally it's the dad who bolts. Hmm. Okay. You didn't know Not that. the case in my situation, though. Yeah, like I think it's 40 or 50% of kids who are divorced barely see their biological dads. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. So what happened to your mom? What did you do know, to really. her? My God, well, you're I do terrible know. as a two-year-old. See, it's hard to tell because I know uh, I know the stories from what my dad has said. So well, that what might your be dad say? Skewed, right, but from what I gather, um, uh, you know, it's really hard to say because from what I gather from my dad, they uh, they didn't they didn't get along essentially, and. Uh, there was like a court case for custody, and he didn't seem to think that she was really interested at all in me, and she just left Whatever, wherever she went. I don't know. Sorry, there was a court case for custody, so she did – because if she just left, I don't think that would even be a court case, right? So she did right. fight to some right. degree for access, and then 
did she leave after the court case was resolved or during or? Uh, it's been a while since I've thought about this. So I'm trying to recall the details here. It does look if you don't don't remember, that's fine. I was just curious if you did, and I would I would try sure. and get those details, right? I mean, I'd sit down with my dad sure. and say, okay, let's go through this timeline. Like when you say two or three, I think it's important to get the facts. Um, I think, um, because of course the problems in a marriage that when you like a marriage get divorced when you're two or three, it's not like it's perfect until then, and then it just falls off the cliff, which means you were born into. A very dysfunctional marriage that was collapsing, right? Right. That's pretty tragic. Thank you. And you understand that there's a parallel here, right? Women, they vanish. Yeah, I've thought about that. You know, oh, the, good. Uh, okay, good. So you're way ahead of me in terms of self-knowledge. They're good. Good. <laughs> I wasn't as young as you are, I think, when I figured that one out. So go ahead. Well, I would say, yeah, I put some thought into that. Um, the whole... You know, trace it back. I've, I've I've journaled about this at times, and I've I've tried to just trace it back as far as I can go, and just you know, try to pull up different events that occurred when I was younger. And uh, it's it's hard for me though to really understand. I don't I don't really have any good memories of when I was really young like that. And you know, I don't remember my mom, and I don't remember how I felt not having my mom there. So I'm sure there's some correlation, but I'm just not really... Well, let I'm me ask really you sure. this, because I, I know what you mean, right? I mean, that that uh, miss miss her, I, I didn't even know she was here, uh, and I've had that, but that's, that's not true, right? So when you were a kid, and you would go over to someone else's house, and the mom would be there, let's go all stereotypical, and the mom would be there, and, and bacon cookies, and uh, what would you like for lunch, and here's some lemonade, and how are you doing, and oh, let me plump right. those cushions for you, and all that, right? How did you feel? Pretty good. Uh, go see, on. I recall, what's that? Go on. I recall, because I, I have a friend I've had for like, centuries now, and uh, I've lived a long time. And when I was really young, I, I was say, I'm speaking to an undead. Cool. Let's get on right. other topics later. Anyway, go on. Um, so I would go over to his house when I was a kid, and he had his mom and dad there. And I remember it was it was nice. It was like, oh, you know, um, you know, this is paraphrasing my thoughts at the time, of course, but it was like, oh, you know, here's a this this mother figure, and she's. You know, she's making lunch and she's making us pancakes or whatever it was, and it felt pretty good to to have that attention from like a mother figure, as I recall. All right. So I'm trying to process how this could be just a net positive. Hey, someone else has something really great that I don't have because my mom abandoned me. I feel only good about that. Like, it has to be bittersweet, right? Sure, that makes sense. Oh, my God, that's an abstract answer. Sure, I calculate that as being correct, right? Well, yeah, that's right. It is abstract. I mean, it makes sense. I haven't I haven't put the thought into that I mean, how much would yet. you have liked for that kind of mom to be in your house? Making right. your pancakes and, right? Sure. How did you like explaining to your friends if they'd say, well, where's your mom? What would you yeah, say? I do remember that when I was younger, and I would say that, and they'd be, like, "Oh, I'm so sad." And what I remember. Would what would you say? Right, right. It's a good. Sorry, what would, what would say you say? Is, uh, what I would say. 
I think I would. I think I would play it down when I was younger. I would be like, oh, it's no big deal. And uh, I'm not sure. I'm sure that wasn't the case when I Why was younger. Why would you play it I, down, do you think? That's what I'm trying to think of. Can I ask you a question that might help? Sure. Try not to lead the witness, Your Honor. Um, how did your dad feel about having a kid with a woman who then left? How did he feel about that impact on you? Because that was your dad's doing, not yours, right? Right. right. Yeah, when you, when you said that, my, my mind went to how did my dad feel about the divorce? Which, no, uh, no, 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 that's, that's, that's him. How did, the, how did your I dad that's feel him. about your mom's leaving and its impact on you and how that would make you feel? Right, the reason I was going there is because I, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever had an answer from him around that, which could mean something significant. Well, what do you think it means? Uh, I imagine he felt pretty bad. Well, look, the topic was minimized with your dad, right? Mm. Like, how did you learn that this needs to be minimized? Children don't naturally minimize. I guarantee you that. My daughter maximizes. Sure. Yeah, right? I mean, she sense. falls down. She doesn't minimize. She doesn't limp around saying, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. She's like, well, I fell. I got it. Owie, dada. Right? Yeah, she might sure. even three days later say, it's still hurting, but I know it's not. Right? So she's not a minimizer by any stretch of the imagination. She's a fully expressed person. Right? Right. Sure. So... If we assume, let's just for the sake of argument, let's assume that minimization is not natural, is not your natural response to a massive disaster like no mom. So how did you learn that it needed to be minimized? In other words, this is another way of asking, whose needs were you serving when you minimized it? I'm not sure exactly how I learned it. It's a... If, if I'm going to think into it, there might be an extended silence because it's going to take me a moment. Well, it's usually easier to figure out than that. Let's imagine that we pass your dad in on this call and you uh -huh. were to talk to him about how hard it was for you to grow up without a mom. What would he say? He would probably say he would talk about how he did the best he could and how... He always worked to try to be there for me kind of thing. Right. So he would make it about him, not you. Right. That's not good, right? That's not good listening. Sure. I'm not trying to, no, I'm trying to say it, but I'm not trying to say a dad's a bad guy or anything, but in the specific instance, if my daughter no, came okay. to me and said something's really upsetting me, if, if my daughter came to me and said something's really upsetting me and I justified it and explained it away and told her uh, about how I felt about it, that would not be good listening on my part, right? Sure. So, if your dad didn't want to process it, didn't want to talk about it, that would be my guess as to where you learned that you had to minimize it and pretend you were fine. And this is a depressingly common occurrence in divorce. 
even divorces which are less catastrophic than this one. You know, people say, oh, my kids are resilient. My kids are fine. They're doing great. And I just think that's not true. I think sure. the kids are like, hey, I think I see what's happening here. There's a big smoking crater in the family photo where mom was. And now my dad's asking if I'm doing okay. I am. I'm fine. I'm good. You know, I'm, 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 I'm great. I got no problems. Right. Of course they're going to say that. Because somebody who's much less work than a child, who the parent chose when they didn't choose the nature of the child, somebody has just been kicked out of the house that the parent was way more attached to and was far easier to negotiate with. So, of course, the kids are going to minimize themselves into a tiny little inconspicuous black hole of accommodation because they get what just happened and they don't want it to happen again with them. Sure, that makes sense. It's a pretty bad decision. Look, I'm happy you're alive. And I assume you're happy you're alive. So, you know, it's good that you're Thank alive. You. But what I'm saying is that uh, it is not a very good decision to have children two years or so before somebody decides that they don't want to be a mom or even a wife or even anywhere near the kid, right? For sure. That is not a good decision. Mm. And that's the kind of thing that kids will need years of conversation to process. And if you weren't encouraged or allowed to talk about it at all, then I think that's not good. Agree. And it means that you then have a habit of not opening your heart to people. Would that be a fair thing to say? I don't think so. I don't think that's accurate. Well, you're not opening your heart to me, and I'm not, com I'm not complaining or criticizing about it. I'm simply pointing it out that your answers are very unemotional and abstract, right? Hmm. I don't feel that way. Well, you did earlier because you said that it's, it was a very abstract answer that you gave. And it's not a criticism. I hope you understand that. I'm not criticizing you at all. At all. I, I mean, sure. I think I completely sure. understand it. I also be, could be completely wrong. I'm just telling you my experience, right? I'm certainly not telling you how you feel or don't feel. I'm just telling you what my experience is. That we're talking about some very powerful stuff here. And, you know, you're reading off the grocery list. Um, I don't feel like it's accurate uh, myself. I forget what we were talking about, about the abstract thing. But, uh, well, what I mean, do you we, feel we at the moment? Assume, we could assume it's one way or the other. I'm fine with exploring. And I appreciate you bringing this up, of course. Like, I'm just trying to figure out, and this is all just amateur theory nonsense, right? So, sure. uh, as sure. usual, hit the, uh, hit the eject button. Hey, I know what I'm for. It doesn't work. But, um, but uh, I'm trying to figure out why people would have a hard time connecting with you to the point where they would just vanish. And... I think that when you come in contact with, a, with somebody's real, genuine, true, unadorned, unabashed self, then people either attach or they recoil. You know, people recoil from honesty or they attach, but they're never indifferent to it, right? I mean, I've had right. people who love my show. I've had people who hate my show, but I've never had anyone who's indifferent to it. Go on. So if you can't forge the kind of attachments with women that you'd like romantically, there are a couple of, the way I see it, there are a couple of logical possibilities. Either you're choosing the right women and you are, quote, driving them away, which I don't believe. Or you're choosing the wrong women and fulfilling a historical pattern. 
and you're choosing those women in order to fulfill a historical pattern. Now, let me tell you the ways that you can differentiate these things, in my opinion. The reason that I don't think you're choosing the right women and driving them away is that the right woman wouldn't just vanish. Like a, a good, virtuous woman, if she was attracted to you and then felt some distance, would say, hey, I feel attracted to you, but I also feel some distance. And it happened at this point, and, and this is what I'm thinking and feeling, and, you know, let's talk about right, it. Right, yeah. Did wouldn't that make that sense? Fantasy. Yeah, it's not just a fantasy. I mean, these women do exist. I'm not saying they're everywhere, but they do exist, right? Sure, that's just a... I guess a part of me it comes up, but uh, sure, yeah. There's a little cynical about that, <laughs> right? Yeah, maybe a Sasquatch too, but I'm never going to marry him, <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> well, okay, but that would be that would be the right kind of woman, right? Sure. And yeah. you're not having those conversations, so it's likely likely that you're not choosing the right kind of woman and driving her away. Does that make sense? That does. So let's go with the other assumption that you're choosing women who are inevitably going to vanish. Because that you're used to managing feelings of women vanishing, and that's your sense of control and efficacy and power. This has come straight out of real-time relationships, the story of Simon the Boxer. You can find it on the PDF uh, at freedomainradio.com forward slash free if you've listened to it uh, or read it. If not, you can go and find it there. Um, so that means that you have spent a lifetime managing the vulnerability, the fear, the anxiety, the anger. I would imagine the rage since it happened so early of female vanishing. And so you are drawn to recreate female vanishing because that's the only thing. Managing the feelings that comes out of that event is, is what you know of as control, as, as management, as efficacy, as competence. You know, a guy who's yeah, walking feel... 45 degrees to the wind because the wind is so strong, he's walking 45 degrees. What happens when the wind stops? He falls over, right? Sure. And so for most of us, if we're so used to walking at 45 degrees – we can't walk except at 45 degrees, which means we've got to constantly find an opposing wind just so we stay up. So if you've got a history of managing female vanishing, then it seems to me likely, if it's unconscious, that you're going to keep seeking out female vanishing. I feel resistance to that notion. Go, go. Tell me. I mean, hey, it's just, just a nonsense theory, so tell me where I'm wrong. I feel like over, we'll say, uh, the past like eight years or so, I've had you know I've had various uh, times where I meet women and you know maybe we date or whatever it is, and I feel like there's been a progression where, say, eight years ago I would have been, we'll call it naive. And maybe not naive, but maybe more along the lines of what you're talking about right now. And then over time, I feel like I've become a lot more conscious of these things going on. So it's like when I meet a woman and I, when this does happen, I don't, it's like I still feel those, those feelings, those old feelings, those childhood feelings. But I can still, I know in my head and I can say, Oh, okay. Well, this isn't. This obviously isn't the person, because if it was, they would, they would be, you know, really curious in this situation, or they would say, you know what, uh, you said this the other day, and I was feeling this, and you know, let's talk about it, or whatever it is. And I feel like over time, I've really become a lot more, um, I'll say picky in that regard. Like when I notice that, I'm like, oh, well, this. This isn't working out, and this is not going to be what I want in the long yes, run. Yes, I understand that. 
So, um, yeah, I understand that. But you remember what I said, uh, what you said when I said that what the right woman would be doing? Uh huh. What did you say? Should be should want to talk about it. You said, yeah, that's the fantasy. Right, the cynical part of me that came up. Yeah, but that's important, right? What about it? It's important. Sure, sure. Go on. Sure, that that part of me um, has existed for a long time. I I feel like I feel like it's a little bit lower lower down than it used to be. Like it's not as significant. It doesn't come up as much. Like I have a more optimistic part of me that says that says, well, you know, these people do exist, and um, you're interested in a certain type, and you know, there's a certain amount of work you got to do to do that, and that's okay, and you're not going to yeah, meet Yeah, sorry, I don't know what any of that means, but let me ask you this. Okay. Are you angry? Are you angry at what your mom did? Hmm, that's interesting. There's two two sides of that. One side is yes, I'm angry because I think that's I think that's something really crappy to do in general. And I'm really against the idea of having kids when you're not even ready yourself to even have a relationship, much less kids. But uh, the other side doesn't really feel much like a like I don't care. It just doesn't affect me. Right. I'm going to give you a little speech because I don't think we're going to emotionally connect, but I'll give you a little speech here. And okay. uh, then I move on to the next caller. And I, I, first of all, just want to really express it was a completely shitty thing that your mom did. And it was not a good thing that your dad did in not helping you process it. Uh, to be abandoned sure. by your mom is really terrible. It's really, really terrible. I think it's worse than being abandoned by your dad. I'm going to be really old school about this. I'm not. Look, I was okay. abandoned by my dad, so I get that. That was pretty. That was really bad. But I think it's even worse with the mom. I mean, she bore you. She breastfed you. I mean, there's got to be some kind of bond there that's pretty hellacious to break. And if it didn't exist to begin with, that's pretty monstrous. So I think that's just horrible. And I think it's horrible that you didn't get, weren't encouraged and and facilitated into, you know talking about it and if your dad couldn't do it at least get you to a, you know, a good therapist who could help you with it or whatever so I think that's really bad all around and I just wanted to express just massive incredible and deep deep sympathy Thank you. The, reason I, the reason I asked if you were angry at your mom is that if you're not angry with your mom then it's because you have taken away her responsibility in the matter and I, I get a sense of that when you say well she wasn't ready I definitely um, don't feel that way, though. But I don't, don't want to sit here and antagonize you. No, don't worry about antagonizing me. I'm fine. I'm just telling you what, what I'm experiencing. Um, and so I'll tell you what, what, I, what I think, and you know, maybe it's useful, maybe it's not. Okay. If you don't get angry at your mom very clearly within your own mind for this terrible abandonment, to have a child and to abandon a child is about the most heinous thing that somebody can do outside of murder and you know other forms of you know incredibly violent assault uh, abandonment is unbelievably wretched it's an unbelievably wretched thing to do as a as a parent and if you're not angry it's because you have taken away her responsibility at some level in your mind and what happens then 
is responsibility is a big switch. It's a big dial. If you dial it down for your mom, you dial it down for everybody. And what that means is, I think, is that you end up saying, well, women just can't be trusted. You know, not my mom in particular. The way that you protect your mom in particular is you extrapolate her traits to all women. Hmm. I'd have to stop you there. Yeah. I don't think that applies to me at all. All right. Well, then I won't give you the rest of the speech. And since nothing okay. that I'm saying is applying to you, I'm afraid I'll have to move on to the caller. And I do apologize for not uh, for so many swings and a miss. I really apologize for that. So uh, I wish you well, the very I, best. I appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks, thank man. you very much. Take care. All right. Take care. All right. And James, if we could do the final caller, that would be excellent. All right. Well, we have two left on the line. Do you want to try to grab them both? Or? Uh, yeah, let's dial them up. All what right. Time is it? Uh, Morgan, you are, you're up. Yep, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can. All right. Hi, Steph. How you doing? I'm very well. How are you doing, my friend? I'm good. All right. So I've got another example, not that we need one because we've got so many, but of a reason that the state is unethical, which I don't think has been touched on specifically by you, but maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. Um, it's similar but distinct to the calculation problem. And as a caveat, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting less and less interested in talking about the state. It's an important thing, but you know, the personal issues and, and the uh, childhood issues are far more important. But this is kind of what I'm good at, and I don't plan on having children. So um, here goes my thing, and take it for what it's worth. So um, the citizens of the government are expected to yield to the alleged expertise of individuals in government. For example, the Fed is given the authority to determine our economic policies. Uh, I see that this goes against the basic principles of our self-ownership. Our ability to avoid harm requires that we maintain our ability to follow our own dis- discernment, which would be completely contrary to being forced to accept others' discernments at at their word, basically. Um, if we are not experts in a subject such as economics, then we cannot truly know that anyone else is an expert, since we don't understand their arguments. Um, if we are experts ourselves, then there is no justification for others to have an authority over our decisions in that sphere. For all intents and purposes, there's no difference from expecting us to trust a randomly selected person. Um, I see this as distinct from the calculation problem, which remains even with the assumption that those are in charge are actually experts. So that's all I got. <laughs> no, I, I think that's I think that's a great argument. Um, I have a, f- a few challenges with that argument, uh, and um, so if I understand this correctly, and I'm just reframing this, not because you didn't do a great job, just to make sure we're on the same page. So we say, look, I'm not an expert on economics, but I can choose Barack Obama, who can choose experts on economics, and therefore good decisions will be made. And Barack Obama is going to say, well, I want to I want to subsidize this, and I want to print money for that, and I want to cut taxes or raise taxes here, there, or everywhere. And I may not understand what all of that means economically, but he's getting good advice from economists who've got Nobel Peace or got Pulitzers or Nobels or whatever the hell they get, Nobels, I think. And and therefore, that's good enough for me. Is, is that that's sort of the argument? Right, yeah, that's sort of what yeah, we're Yeah, but if you don't know anything about economics, how do you know who's a good economist and a bad economist, right? Exactly, yeah, that, right. that's my point. Now, the counter-argument to that is is something like this. Look, I'm not a doctor, but that doesn't mean I can't choose a good doctor. Right. I, like, I don't you, have to get, get a degree in being a doctor. I don't have to get an MD in order to choose a doctor. I can just choose a doctor, and he's a good doctor, and, you know, if he's bad, I'll whatever. I, I'll choose another doctor after a while, which is sort of like like politics. So tell me how you respond to that. I think there are good responses to that, but, you know, I'm happy to let you respond to that. Yeah, no, that's 
I mean, that's, you know, completely appropriate. And I thought of that, but, um, when you go to a doctor, you can get referrals, you can get, you know, um, testimonials from other patients and whatnot. You know, we don't have that choice with, with the government. So of course we have to defer, if we want the benefits of certain experts, then we have to defer, um, to their expertise, but having a choice is, is essential for the self-ownership, I think. And, um, I also thought of an interesting, um, thing that would follow from my argument, which I don't really like. Um, I'm a student of physics, so, you know, there's, there are a lot of people who, whenever the LHC comes online, they, they panic and they're like, oh my God, it's going to create black holes and strange matter. And (laughs) and I want to say, you know, like, you know, it's not going to do anything. Just trust me. Like, well, not that I'm working at the LHC, but, you know, trust them, they're physicists. Um, So my argument would kind of um, imply that the physicists don't have the right to do these experiments because not everyone knows. Well, yeah, look, (laughs) the way that I would counter the physics argument, tell me if this makes sense to you, um, the way that I would counter the argument from physics is that they don't want to die. You know, let's assume that the physicists are not engaged in a mass genocide suicide pact to destroy the entire planet by turning it into a black hole. You know, that's, you know, so we assume that they want to live and that they're the closest and they're going to be harmed first. And and so that is, I think, a reasonable, you know, that's a reasonable assumption. Uh, The other thing, too, is that I would say that I would not trust a doctor who was being paid by only one drug company to be objective about the drugs being used, right? This is one of the problems, one of the many problems with psychiatry and uh, the pseudo-meds called SSRIs and other kinds of meds, right? Yep, if there's a conflict a of interest, <laughs> yeah, if there's, expertise gets washed out by conflict of interest, right? Right. I, I cannot trust, um, you know, if, if my dentist is getting paid an extra $1,000 every time she drills my tooth, I am not going to be believing that she's going to look into every cheaper alternative for me than drilling my tooth, right? Mm -hmm. So where there's a conflict of interest, where there are unjust incentives, expertise actually becomes dangerous, not positive. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So if space aliens were saying to all the, the, the physics guys, if you destroy the planet, we will take you to the planet of infinite cheerleaders and, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, but, but if there's a conflict of interest, then expertise actually becomes dangerous. And the less visible that conflict of interest is, the more dangerous that expertise becomes. Does that make sense? Because they, get yeah, the, they then get trust yeah. without objectivity. And yeah, so the problem, with politicians, the problem with politicians, of course, is that there are so many incentives that skew their decision-making that we can't trust any of their expertise or any of the experts who advise them. So the expert who says you should increase government spending is the expert who is giving the most benefit to the politician. And the expert who says you must cut government spending and curtail public sector contracts is basically causing the politician to have horrible fights, probably be sued, and definitely not get reelected, right? Mm-hmm. And so the self-interest of the politician is going to have him co- – it's going to cause him to listen to the person who says expand government power and to reject the person who doesn't. And that's the incentives built into the system. And so the expertise becomes more dangerous because of the conflict of interest. And that's not specific to politicians, but it's most dangerously manifested in the realm of politics. Right. So that would be, that would be my response. Cool. Does that, well, does that make sense? I think that uh, – yeah, it does. Um, this this argument that I came up with 
um, came out of me talking about economics and the depression, which is something that I'm pretty interested in because economics is like so central. I, I consider our economy as like our eyes, you know, if you, if you conflate the signals that we're getting, you know, intervene in the economy with tariffs and subsidies and bailouts and whatnot, then it's like, it's like you're driving, but you hold in front of you a a painted picture or a video of some other road completely and you drive based on that information you know, it, it just doesn't work so I, I see economics as really central so um, you know I think this argument applies because people say you know um, you got to trust the Fed or whatever to you know regulate our monetary and fiscal policies when you know how do I know I should trust the Fed when I don't understand the arguments um, you know what you said about the vested interest is kind of supersedes what I'm saying, but I, I thought yeah, I'd bring I, it up. Yeah, I mean, I would le- it's certainly, you know, why should I trust the Fed when I don't understand it? With I, I mean, I think that's, that you could argue against that, but I think why should I trust the Fed when right before every election, they start printing more money? When there are demonstrated statistical relationships between the Federal Reserve policies and that which is immediately beneficial to those in power? Which is a clear, a clear conflict of interest and a clear manifestation that that conflict of interest is being regularly, is regularly warping and distorting the the decisions of the Fed. Why should I trust them when they demonstratedly pursue the interests of those and support the interests of those in power rather than the good of the majority? I mean, that's not even why should I trust them. That's why I can't trust them. Yeah, you're right. And that's, um, that's much more important than what I've been talking about and, and those kind of things are, are things that everyone should be able to understand. I don't know if they do, but they should be able to. Yeah. The other argument with the doctor as well is I know if I'm getting better or worse. Yeah. I don't know if the economy as a whole is getting better or worse years down the road, right? I mean, I know if I'm <laughs> getting better or worse. I can I can track that. And I can right. also track that the, they're, you know, not here in Canada because it's illegal to get information about your doctors that's, you know, objective. But in the oh, States, well. of course, you can test whether or not your doctor you know, I, I, you know, it's illegal to not put the number of calories on a Big Mac, but I can't find out how good my doctor is at curing X, Y, or Z that I've got. What his success rate is? Yeah. That's. I mean, that, <laughs> I can't be given that information. I mean, God, I mean, I'm only a 46, 45 year old adult. I can't be trusted with facts about whether I'm going to be well cured or not by my doctor. Good heavens, no. <laughs> oh, incidentally, speaking of exercise, <laughs> speaking of Big Macs, did you see that that kids under 18 can't buy Big Macs anymore? What? Yeah, in the UK. But anyway, you're um, kidding I wanna le- no, I'm not kidding you. I want to let you get on to your next caller because yeah, yeah. you're ever, That's ever so funny. Me. So we can send those kids to war. We can run up national debts in their name. <laughs> we can educate them really badly. But God forbid they get four four grams of fat in a row. Anyway, it's just I know, two right? for words. All right. Thanks, uh, okay. Steph. Thanks. Great, great, uh, great comments. And uh, I, I do find that topic fascinating. Please feel free to call in uh, any time. And uh, it would be great maybe to have a conversation about how quantum mechanics <laughs> nothing to do with philosophy. Anyway, we'll talk about that another time. because that's Yeah, something. anytime. <laughs> I All can right, teach you anytime. quantum mechanics if you like. Bye. Please do. Well, listen, thanks again, James. Thanks for some callers. Really, really great questions and comments, as always. And um, I must say, I'm quite addicted to the Blue Sky Sunday show, so uh, I will uh, try and figure out how to get a little bit more juice for the old uh, uh, for the old notebook. And um, have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week, everyone. Uh, freedomainradio.com forward slash donate. Always, I am with the... Uh, with the bowl and the shekels uh, and the begging voice. So if you can drop by and donate, I would hugely appreciate it. And I've uh, got some good listener calls coming up this week, a couple of interviews coming up. And it looks like, it looks like I will be going to Porkfest this year. And I have a, a, such a great idea for a speech, I don't think I can even share it with you. It's completely unlike anything I've done this before. Done before. I think it will go viral. It will be incredibly memorable. 
and it's entirely audience-driven. So I hope that you will be able to come out to uh, the Porcupine Freedom Festival. Uh, yeah, do we have a website? I'm sure that we have a website for it. Um, let me just find it. Do not mistype Porkfest into your Internet Explorer window or mistype Porkfest into your Internet Explorer window. It can be quite exciting either way. Yeah, so you can go to porkfest.com uh, to check it out. Uh, I will P-O-R-C. P-O-R-C. Fast. P-O-R-C-fast.com. And um, I'll be going down there with La Famille. So if you would like to meet them all, I think it would be great. Uh, they'd certainly like to meet all the listeners. And uh, I'll be doing a whole bunch of speaking and roasting and toasting. And uh, I hope that people will be able to join us at Porkfest, P-O-R-C-fest.com. Uh, when is it this year? I know it's June. Let me just check. June 18th through the 24th. June 18th through the 24th. Uh, it's it's a real blast. Um, you know, you can you might have to rough it just a little bit or drive in, but um, it's um, you know, we've got great music, great dance parties, um, and uh, lots of fantastic personalities. I mean, the the guys from Free Talk Live were was there. Mark Stevens uh, is there, and uh, lots of other great people. James Cox will be there. Uh, Adam Kokesh uh, will be there, and um, once again, I have no doubt that I will be able to beat him down in an arm wrestle using only two arms, one legs, and three other guys. No, four. Four other guys. Uh, so I feel that's about an even contest. And I hope that you will be able to join us. Uh, it's a real blast, incredibly memorable, and you owe it to yourself to see what a free community looks like when totally drunk. So <laughs> have a great week, everyone, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks so much for joining me.